my great pleasure to introduce my friend Steve Sordello, who for many years, 14 years, was the CFO of LinkedIn. He's had a tremendous career as a finance executive. And as Steve knows, uh, there is a personal connection because the recruiter who recruited me to Oracle found me on LinkedIn. So I have LinkedIn to thank for a big part of my, uh, my personal success. Uh, Steve is now CFO Emeritus at LinkedIn and he's retired. Uh, and his, after years of quarterly conference calls and all the challenges of, of being the CFO at an important growing organization, his biggest problem now is training his Great Dane. He's got a, a, an older Great Dane and a younger uh, Golden Retriever and the Great Dane is beating up on the golden retriever and he's trying to uh, to train his dog. So uh, you have that to look forward to all of you as you, uh, when you retire from your, your, your uh, high profile finance careers. Uh, so Steve, let's start uh, about uh, back when, at your first CFO role, uh, you were working at Ask Jeeves, you were not the CFO. I think that Ask Jeeves leadership decided to make a CFO change, promoted you into that role at the time when the internet bubble was bursting and the world was falling apart. Bring us back to that time. What was it like when you first heard you were gonna be promoted and what was the situation at Jeeves and what was your personal situation? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Jeff, um, uh, for, for hosting today. Uh, and yes, on, on the dog thing, that is, that's a big deal at home right now. And uh, as Jeff and I were talking before, it's usually the, the person is the problem, not the dog, in terms of training. So uh, I need some self-reflection there. Um, yeah, I think the Ashjeeves, so first of all, I don't know how many folks online um, know of Ashjeeves. Uh, it, it was a company back in the dot-com days in the search space. Um, obviously didn't win in that space, but competed with Google, Altavista, Yahoo, Microsoft, et cetera. Um, and I thought maybe, um, just briefly before that, you know, uh, I, I was at Adobe Systems previously. I, I was recruited uh, into the dot-com world. And, um, you know, it was quite a shock for me when I joined uh, right before they went public. And th this was a very successful IPO at the time. It was the third largest uh, single-day pop um, on record at the time. And um, I think one of the things that made it somewhat of a, a shock was walking uh, in from companies that, that I'd been at before that had been a little bit more mature in many ways. Um, and before even getting to the CFO stage, I think it's, it's, it's helpful just to understand uh, the landscape a little, um, starting uh, from the leadership side in terms of what you're walking into sometimes. Um, one of my early experiences uh, at Ash Jeeves, um, you know, I got there, like I said, two weeks before the IPO. Um, the, the executive team was essentially the CEO, two GMs, and, and the CFO. And um, I thought it would be a good idea, um, given I hadn't met the GMs, um, to go out and, and start to learn um, about, you know, the challenges people had at the company. And uh, one of them hadn't been in town, uh, so I decided to go meet with some of his folks. And I was meeting with this marketing person. Um, he came back that day um, and he walked by the office and then he came in, introduced himself. I introduced myself, um, et cetera. Uh, and then he left. And then 20 seconds later, he came back in and he said, Steve, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, sure. And I went to his office and he closed the door um, and he berated me. Uh, he said, 
what the F are you doing talking to my people? And I said, I was like, oh no, I was just trying to you know, understand how I could help. They don't know what they need. You talk to me. And here I was like coming from Adobe, a great company. You know, I'm like, what the hell did I walk into? Um, so that was just one facet, let alone, you know, many other challenges in the business model. Um, you know, they, they didn't really have any systems. They were on QuickBooks, didn't have any planning. I quickly discovered they were going to miss their first quarter out. They didn't even know it. So it was, it was a very, it was a, it was a company initially set up in a time where I think um, in many ways, greed drove, you know, people wanting to win the lottery basically. And, but there were a lot of good people there too. And uh, what essentially happened was when the dot-com implosion happened, you know, we were already down a path of, you know, trying to make some changes, um, but it very quickly um, entered a stage where, you know, we had gone through one CFO, we brought in another, he was there about six months, he was pushed out. And I was actually trying to help the controller get the CFO job. She wanted it. And then the board came in, pushed out the CEO, um, and the board member asked me to be CFO. And I had never even thought about being CFO. Uh, and it was a pretty, um, I would say, surprising thing for me. I hadn't led large teams. You know, I was deeply involved in the business. Um, but the challenge there was you had a situation you're walking into, you know, the stock was at 87 cents. Um, you know, our, we had about 75 million in cash from some joint ventures that we did, um, but our market cap was 30 million. So you could see, you know, we were hemorrhaging cash. We didn't have a business model. We need to hire a bunch of editors to sign any deals. Uh, we didn't have technology. We need to acquire technology. We needed to divest and lay off people. And I looked at the situation at the time, you know, I had it organizationally the challenge with the controller who wanted the role if I were to take it. And I looked at it and thought, gee, I probably have, the company probably has a 10% chance of surviving. Um, and I probably have a 10% chance of being anywhere remotely successful. But I think at the time, you know, there, there, are, there are very few times where opportunities like that come. And I, I looked at it and I said, I just got to do it. I just got to do it. And, you know, it was a challenging, I was there about seven years. Um, but ultimately, you know, we went through, rebuilt the, the shareholder base, we divested the enterprise business, we invested in the consumer side, we did some strategic deals, we did some acquisitions that brought in technology. Um, and ultimately, we sold it um, to IAC uh, successfully uh, down, down the road. So it was, a, it was one of those moments that was very transformational um, for me as a CFO, because I was thrown into very difficult situations across numerous fronts, raising capital, you know, the challenges of, of reorgs. And um, so I got a lot of miles in that period. And I was 30 years old. That was the other thing. I was very, very young to be thrown in a situation like that. So again, very, very, um, I'd say dr traumatic, dramatic, uh, but also transformational uh, for me as a, as a first-time CFO. Steve, what, what a story. So what was, uh, you weren't the controller. What was your role before you were CFO at SGFs? So I was head of planning, financial planning. And when you were tapped to be the CFO, approximately how many employees did they have? Do you remember? I would say we probably had 900. And it so- It needed to go down to like, about two or 300. Okay, so it went from 900 down to two or 300, you actually laid off 
75 percent of the employees no nah, maybe not that much not not all in one thing uh probably 500 yeah and then, and then drifted down yeah yeah and so uh you you had this you you got the keys to the kingdom during in the middle of a crisis uh, you only had a 10 percent chance of succeeding and you obviously did succeed uh what when look in hindsight what were the two or three decisions you made which were pivotal that helped you win in that situation you were so there. i think um well i think right out of the gate on on the org side the, the in terms of the controller you know i i i don't have the accounting background to the depth and it was really important for me to retain her and um have her confidence and uh so that was a real critical thing that i needed to focus on and it happened and she became a really huge advocate over time which was great um so that was something immediately uh there were very very many short term you know i i think we're, you're in a situation where everybody wants to think long term but in that cycle we, we couldn't even reconcile cash my first quarter in like we we, we didn't have the right control systems um and so that needed to be addressed very quickly. Um, but I think at its core uh, was really focusing on the things that mattered. And you know, one of the advantages, if there are any, of being in a situation like that is in times like that, it's it's more obvious for people. You know, uh, when you need to make quick decisions and get people aligned on them, when you're running out of cash and things are challenging and the stock price is where it is. Um, and there's kind of existential challenges, uh, getting people focused on the right things is sometimes easier than when you have everything going for you and everybody has these positive NPV projects and it's all relative. Um, and so we really focused the company on the key things, technology, scaling, um, the business lines where we could be successful and uh, really optimizing the resources that we had. That, that was at its core at that time that we needed to get right. And did the manager who berated you uh, stay very long? No, he actually uh, had left, um, <laughs> actually before I became CFO, right before. Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, very smart guy. Like, I mean, it's like one of these people that just wicked smart, but you know, that, I think that was the environment to a large extent, that was probably a little bit more in the extreme, uh, but that you saw that play out in a number of times at the company, that type of interaction and uh, just not healthy, right? Just not what you want to build over right. time. And you had 75 million of cash, you had a 30 million market cap. What was it ultimately sold for? 2.3 billion. Wow, over $2 billion. Yeah, so, which, which you know, back in that day was was a big number. <laughs> I know right. today it's not a big number. But 70X, if someone yeah. had bought the stock then, incredible. That's terrific. So uh, let's go back to the beginning, uh, just to hear about your career. Where were did you grow up? Uh, did you always want to be a CFO? Yeah, I um, so I grew up in the Bay Area in San Jose. And um, I think, uh, you know, one thing a little unique about my history is my, my parents were fruit farmers which was rare even back then, um, you know, to have a business like that. So my brother and I, mostly all summer, you know, we worked in the orchards and our main, main was cutting and drying shed for apricots. Um, and we did prunes and walnuts and we sold to packing houses. And um, so that was kind of a little different in the background. You know, I would say my, um, in my early years at school, I, I wasn't really a huge, you know, 
studious person. I focused more on sports. And um, so when it became time for coming to college, I hadn't really put a lot of thought into it. You know, my, my parents didn't go to college. My dad didn't even go to high school. You know, they were in kind of the, the depression era needing to work. And um, so it was always there that we would do it, but it wasn't like a planned thing. So when it came, I took the, I took the SAT and I ended up going to San Jose State. I ended up um, originally thinking my major would be graphic design. Um, and then I discovered that wasn't my path. I, you know, just didn't feel right. And my brother had been someone who went into accounting. He started in community college and transitioned to Santa Clara. Um, and so I tried business and I, I, I originally didn't like accounting, but I loved uh, finance economics. I loved the, the business case study and management approach. And that's where I started to see my path um, in terms of where I would go. And I ended up getting a a pretty good initial job in a recession at a, at a, in a rotation program at a pharmaceutical company called Syntex in, in Palo Alto. So that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a very planned approach, um, but, uh, you know, I think I fell ultimately into uh, the area that I, I have a lot of passion for. So you started in the rotation program in, a, in the financial planning department? Or in no, it, it was a broader rotation program and it changed while I was there. It was initially, you know, accounting, cost accounting, and financial planning. That was the rotation. But when I was there, uh, you know, this was a company that had been very um, solid for 30 years. Um, they had a drug called Naperson uh, that dealt with arthritis that was going off patent when I joined a couple of years later, but they had all these blockbusters, but they didn't make up for it. And so they started to change things along the way. So I ended up doing accounting and then getting moved into something AP, which was unusual, right? For, you know, a rotation in finance. But I think it actually was a beneficial long-term for me to, to kind of, you know, get experience in an area like that. So that, that's, that was the, the two rotations I, I had. Well, AP, I mean, accounts payable. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so then what happened next? You were there for how long and where do you go next? So I, I was there, um, they, uh, you know, had difficulties. Um, and ultimately I left to go to Adobe systems and Adobe was, um, uh, you know, I use the word transform transformational. That was very transformational uh, period for me. Adobe was one of those companies at the time where, um, you know, didn't have a lot of finance people at all. Like it was, you know, one FP&A person and the, the, the right person in that org at the right time. I started in accounting. I had a, an approach that was just very, I was eager I was eager to learn. I was eager to help. I worked ungodly hours and I started to get pulled in different things. Um, so I got to work on, you know, me with, with the GM of um, the uh, graphics division acquiring Photoshop, just me and that person and doing the valuation behind that. I got involved in the distribution of Acrobat and learning about how to best distribute a product that needs to be shared. You, you know, don't try to sell it, get it out there. Um, I, I, I got involved in from a business case uh, at my MBA, uh, recommending the, the creative bundle suite in terms of how to optimize you know, the revenue. So it was just a really great experience. Um, and then a lot of great people, loved the company. And then I got pulled in, as I mentioned, to the dot-com world, which was very different, but I think in retrospect, a, a great experience and a lot of great people there too. A lot of, a lot of the end of the day is who you work with. Um, and ultimately in every role I've had, I've great teams. And then post the sale of, of Ash Jeeves, I, I was trying to take some time off 
and um, I ended up getting recruited and originally said no. And then they said, well, we'll give you the summer. And then it was with TiVo. And um, I went and great people, really interesting experience. What I found there that was a challenge for me, it was hard to have impact. And the reason was I felt was because it was primarily a litigation play at that point. You know, and I didn't tell people, remind people who TiVo is, they may not know. Yeah. So TiVo, um, you know, basically created the DVR um, in the early days. The digital video recorder. Digital video recorder. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, when people first saw that, when it first came out and, you know, right around 2000, 99, 2000, it was revolutionary, right? Obviously, everybody had VHS videotapes and this is the first time you could record TV shows on yeah. a disc as opposed to on tape. Yeah, so what ended up ultimately happening is the cable companies uh, derived their own versions. And so it became much more competitive. Stole their IP, you might say? Yeah, yeah. and so basically <laughs> it became an IP play, right? And so that was that was the main business. And so I, I got the call for LinkedIn and uh, the first pass I was like, no, I haven't, I haven't even been here a year yet. And then um, ultimately I looked at it and said, okay, there's this opportunity over here where I really feel like I can have an impact. You know, this is a company that's very early stage in LinkedIn, but you could see, you know, network effects, you could see potential. Um, and so I decided to, to make the change and went to LinkedIn in 2007. Um, that's a, that's a long, you know, almost 15 years, um, many cycles at LinkedIn. Uh, it was a very different company when I joined. Uh, you know, How many employees approximately when you joined? We had about a hundred um, and now we have about 17,000, we were, we were, we were about 10 million in revenue when I joined, um, and we just crossed 10 billion this year. And so, you 10 know, million to 10 billion. Yeah. Just a very different company. You know, we went from, you know, obviously losing money to, you know, 40% gap margin. So it's like a very evolution and, you know, 800 million members from, you know, roughly 10 million when I joined too. And so it's, uh, it, it was a very, um, just for me, in terms of growth opportunity, you know, I mentioned that SGs a lot happened in a short period of time. At LinkedIn, a lot happened overextended uh, in terms of, you know, scaling, personally scaling, scaling the company. Um, and so it's been, you know, very purposeful company. So it's been a great company to be part of. And, and you know, I've been the last few years um, since, you know, we had, we had various stages, I would view. We had the, the pre-public stage, which was raising capital particularly right before Lehman, which was, you know, that, that challenging period in 08 um, to the IPO stage, to post IPO, and then to Microsoft. And um, the last few years, I've been trying to like figure what's the right time um, to, to try to transition. And uh, um, there's been a few moments where I almost did it, but this was the year I, I decided to do it. And um, so I'm, I'm currently on a couple boards or three boards, one nonprofit and two uh, public companies. Take us back to the decision to leave TiVo to go to LinkedIn. At the time, LinkedIn was a much smaller company than TiVo, right? Yeah. Was yeah. that a, an easy decision, a hard decision? What were what, what were your what were you thinking? So, um, yeah, a lot of people, um, you know, from a LinkedIn perspective, many people didn't know what it was, and the people who did, it was a company that was like a job site or it was an online Rolodex, um, and uh, I think for me. You know, I'm I'm typically the type of person that won't leave something. Um, I, I I get into it, and um, you know, I'm pretty committed and loyal. 
I think there were a couple things I mentioned that uh, one was just that feeling of not not able to have the impact, and that's that's a huge uh, thing to to not feel when you're at a company at you know at a CFO level. Um, you know, and the other, I think there were a little, there were little things around, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person that, um, like I will usually undersell and try to over deliver. And when I'm put in environments where, you know, there's this incentive to hype, it's, it's almost like counter to me where, and I, you know, I push back on it. And so I think there was a little bit of that going on too. Um, so those two dynamics just, you know, told me that this this just isn't the right place for me. Um, and and like you said, LinkedIn was LinkedIn when you walked in, it was it wasn't what you thought it would be either. There were there were many 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 challenges, but um, it, you, it, at least there was this opportunity that um, that you could see having impact towards. That's very interesting. The cultural difference you're saying, where in one company there was a pressure you felt to hype things, and another company you didn't feel that pressure. Did that pressure come from the board of directors, from the CEO, from everybody? How, how did you, how did you feel that pressure? I think it came from just, um, uh, you know, I think some some leaders in in roles, you know, they're they're um, they're trying to create, uh, you know, and there is a dance around this, right? This idea of um, if you can create enough smoke, you can start the fire, and um, and I think that's something in, in the Valley in general that, that happens sometimes to, I think, a legitimate degree at certain char characteristics of around getting engagement and things like that. But um, yeah, it, it came from various, uh, you know, obviously um, senior sources uh, that, that just had different styles, right? And so, and it just wasn't, it wasn't my, it wasn't my style. So I, you know, it just, it, it, it felt like it just conflicted with my approach. And so that between the impact was the bigger, but that was just a secondary. Um, yeah, okay. That sounds like a pretty important lesson learned to have a compatible style between you and the, the culture of the company and the executive team. Uh, I know I feel that at Bessemer where I've served now for 10 years, it's Bessemer is among the venture capital firms is probably among the more analytical firms. And I feel that myself as well. Uh, when you think about your career, uh, you said you came out of the planning background, not a controller background, and then you became a CFO. Uh, at LinkedIn, you, you've now trained your successor and you've hired people uh, between uh, backgrounds in accounting, backgrounds in planning, backgrounds on Wall Street. How have you tried to build your team and how have you thought about training your successors? Um, you know, I think this is a good question. I think broadly, at LinkedIn, you know, under under the CFO role at LinkedIn, historically, you know, you've had the, the, the finance functions, accounting, FP&A, tax, you know, treasury, et cetera, investor relations. Um, but then we also had, you know, the corporate development. Um, we had a, a group called business operations, which really focuses on a much more like really operational strategic elements and then kind of workplace. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a diversity of, of different skills uh, across the board. Um, I think in terms of the secession and, and the ideal roles coming out, you know, we, we hired people within my broader finance organization from, you know, big four, from, uh, you know, other companies, obviously, that had, had um, 
elements of accounting or planning uh, from investment bankers, uh, from you know companies like McKinsey and Bain, um, all these types of people. And so it's a pretty pretty diverse group of, of backgrounds and skills. Um, in terms of the broader question, in terms of the right fit, you know, I for for LinkedIn, the the approach that we that I've used, I think generally um, with folks on my team, uh, particularly ones that are coming up, is uh, to give them exposure to a number of areas, um, not necessarily rotating them, but like for example, in IR, they go out and they they work with the the teams across the company, understand the business deeply so that they understand the strategy and, 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 and et cetera. Um, and on, you know, James, my successor, for example, he's been at the company around eight years. Um, he's been in different business units. Um, he's, so he's had the, the operational component. He's, he's worked with um, the M&A side, uh, you know, not directly in corporate de development, but obviously partnering with facilities as we've grown um, our footprint. Um, and then obviously on the planning side, both like I said, operationally within division and at the corporate FPNA level. Um, and so I think generally, if I, if I were to advise, um, I think having an accounting foundation, um, having operational experience that somewhat ties you into M&A and different areas, but gives you the business and the deep business um, understanding, and then corporate where you see it all come together is a sweet spot. But I don't think there's any formulaic thing. I think, especially if you're looking at other companies, a lot of it's situational to the company. If you need, if it's a company that's growing through M&A, you probably need someone with more investment banking M&A experience. If you have a turnaround situation, you need someone who's an operational person. If you have an accounting scandal, maybe you need someone from an accounting as a CFO. And I think the most important thing in any of those situations is complementing you with your team. Um, in terms of the skill sets that's, that are needed um, based on where you're strong or weaker. And I think that that's the most critical thing to get right in, in, in that situation. How has the finance organization evolved over time? Uh, when you started, you said it was very small. How many people are in finance at LinkedIn today and approximately how many in the key functions like accounting and planning? Do you have uh, divisional CFOs or are those more just divisional the business partner kind of things. Yeah, we we don't we don't have um, uh, divisional CFOs. We have we have um, we've essentially aligned um, between BizOps and FPNA on the business partnering side, uh, different responsibilities and roles. And I think we we typically go beyond a typical finance. I think a typical that you would imagine in terms of kind of the operational side, um, in terms of you know helping derive strategy and operating goals and, and kind of tying it all together end to end. So as I mentioned, it's grown. I, when I joined, we had one finance person other than me, uh, actually two, they just hired a controller. And it, so we had a controller and kind of this all-purpose AP person. And so, um, you know, it's grown from that to, you know, overall my org, it's about 500 people. Um, but that includes multiple, you know, functions as I mentioned. Right. And you start off where people are, for the most part, generalists, I assume, early on, and then they become specialists. How did you think about when you broke out those functions? When, when did you add corporate development? When did you add investor relations and things like that? Yeah, so we, um, we actually had uh, corporate development fairly early. Initially, it didn't report to me. Um, 
you know, when I first joined, uh, there was a, there was an we had an externally focused um, uh, corp dev role. We pulled that in, um, and as part of the the goal of corp dev, it was understanding the broader landscape. But but we made it very tied into product, and and the, the strategies of the different product teams, given we're primarily a product company, and so um, that was pulled in very early on, probably my first year there, second year there. Um, we didn't hire IR until after the IPO, which in hindsight, I probably would have done before um, uh, in, in hindsight. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the other functions, we, we had, you know, we had accounting and initially our controller did everything, accounting, tax, treasury. Um, and then I can't remember the exact years, but, you know, right around probably my second or third year there before the IPO, we started to break things up. Um, so I think I think it was right around that time frame that we started right. to develop these more specific functions. Right. Uh, in your 14 years at LinkedIn, you've you've learned a lot. You, it sounds like you're constantly learning, but there were things you didn't know 14 years ago. How did you think about your own personal development, personal training? Did you try to find advisors or mentors? Did you read a lot? Did you take classes? Uh, what was that your own process in thinking about how you were going to develop in your career and your skills? Um, you know, I think my, maybe if you, you know, when I mentioned my background early on, um, my personality, especially early in my career, and it's still there, is I, um, I think I overcompensated by working more, right? I was going to be, I wasn't going to be the smartest guy in the room, but I was going to, I was going to work the hardest. I probably didn't say no enough. I, I took on different things in different areas that I think in some ways hurt me in some ways, you know, helped me in, in, in my career. Um, and, you know, for me, I was always kind of learning firsthand. Like I was jumping into whatever it was and I was primarily doing it myself. Um, and I think one of the biggest um, challenges for me over time, and this, this, this kind of ties to um, probably, you know, like the most important advice I'd, I'd been given or like things that enabled me to be successful was, you know, obviously you reach a point where um, as a company is scaling where that doesn't scale. Um, and, uh, you know, I hit that point where um, I started to get feedback on, you know, both uh, the talent I did have on my team and their inability to scale at the point we were at, um, as well as, um, you know, just, just how do I delegate? And I think that was a period of time for me, you know, my first 15 years, I was successful a certain way. And so it's hard to break away from that. And um, so that was, I think, a, a very important transition for me was recognizing that I needed to make some changes in terms of my team in order for me to be successful. And I think the key learning there, I was always so much, I was always so much under um, the belief that, look, people work so hard for you. Um, you know, you got you to just stick, you got to stick and keep and grow. And I think one of the things I learned along the way is that's not good for the company. It's not good for me and it's not even good for them. And 
the irony in, in about a year, year and a half, I, tur I, I, I changed over my whole team. Every single person, the controller, the FP&A, the systems person, tax. And what I learned in that process was it was actually a really healthy process all the way around. The, the people understood. Um, uh, and, it, and then I got talent in that was more appropriate for the scale that we were at. And then all of a sudden I realized, I was like, oh my God, this is like completely different. And now I can focus on different things. And, and um, that was a, uh, in terms of the growth at LinkedIn for me, that was probably that transition. If I, if I didn't do that, I, I wouldn't have been able to succeed. I would have drowned. And um, again, it would have been not great for the company or, or anybody involved. And I think, so I think that was, that was the biggest kind of learning for me. Um, and then I think on top of that, is, is this idea of just kind of growth mindset, right? Just wanting to learn, um, uh, but it's a different, a different way of learning, right? As opposed to doing everything and learning, it's, it's, it's at a different capacity. It's coaching, it's, it's working through other people uh, in a way of learning new areas and, and, and also you know, helping them grow and learn. So that, that was probably the biggest area in terms of growth for me um, and learning uh, that, that kind of enabled me uh, to kind of still be here 15 years later. You know, I'm the, I'm the, the only person in the executive team that is kind of like uh, from the start to the finish uh, we've had, you know. And so I think part of it is that that ability to, to kind of um, realize that the team is so critical. And, uh, um, and so that, that, was the, that was the biggest. So Steve, what I'm hearing is uh, you would, your typical approach to a problem is you would personally do it. You would be very loyal to the people who were there, even if they didn't have the experience once you got to a bigger scale and something clicked at that point where you, where you decided to then bring in outsiders who had more experience. Is that fundamentally what happened? Yeah. And again, I don't think it's, that's always the case, right? There's some, there's some internal promotion too, I think. And I think click is probably a generous term. I think I was given advice many times <laughs> and um, I fought it and I fought it and I, uh, and, um, and then eventually, you know, it clicked, I guess, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a light switch. Um, and uh, um, again, I think the irony there is it, it, it was good for the people as well that were in the roles that really were kind of beyond where their sweet spot was. Um, and, and, and they told me themselves too, which, which was just, you know, it was, a, it was a good outcome, a lot of stress, um, but it's really the right outcome. Great, well, uh, let's take a break right there. And Laura, I think you have some comments then we can uh, open up for more Q and A. Yeah, absolutely. And great questions, folks. Keep sending them on in. Um, but just really quickly, I wanted to uh, do an elevator pitch for Airbase. So we are a spend management platform. Um, that means we handle all of your non um, payroll AP spend. So that's your corporate card program, your bill payments, your reimbursements. Um, and uh, the team in Airbase, we can help you um, customize your approval workflows, put in a lot more automation to really allow your finance team to do more with less. Um, so if you're interested in learning more, we would love to tell you. And if uh, I'm just launching a poll right now, if you're interested in learning more, just say yes, or if not, no problem, and we'll follow up. Um, but yeah, uh, back over to you, Jeff, we've got some great audience questions coming in. 
Uh, terrific. Uh, Steve, we have a question going back to Ask Jeeves. You said how important it was for you to retain the controller who was very capable. Uh, how did you keep that person motivated and growing when they had wanted to be CFO and that they didn't get that role, when she didn't get that role? So um, I think at the time, a lot of it was was just it was a it was a trust thing because I think the way the way the the, the optics of the way it went down, um, where on one hand I was you know huge advocate of her trying to be CFO and then all of a sudden I'm being asked, um, and I remember the early early days it was it was just a really hard um, uh, discussion and I think ultimately. Um, it was a it was just a conversation about what the company needed and um, the skill sets that were needed, and um, you know she didn't have a, 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 the, the remainder of her career there. Obviously, she she got through a period and then transitioned it to who, who assistant controller to a controller, but um, got through the period uh, that we needed that you know the couple of years or so, and um, I think a lot of it was just. Uh, realizing that we were we were on we were really on the same page and trying to accomplish the same objectives, and um, you know her her understanding kind of what happened in terms of the the background of it all. Um, that was it. It was just aligning on goals, and um, you know there really wasn't more more to it. And it sounds like there must have been a good personal relationship where she trusted you and believed she could be successful working for you as well. Yeah. I yeah. I think there was trust. I, 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 you know, I think that was, that was the thing that pushed it over. Um, you know, and I think that's something that is just so important, uh, you know, as people think about, you know, the CFO role, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned, you know, sometimes people are, are really smart. They have super high IQ. Um, and then sometimes people have good EQ, right, where they listen and they understand. Um, and I think the combination of those two, along with, you know, being adaptable to different personalities and styles uh, to be effective in terms of optimizing your role and other people and how you persuade. And I think that that element of, of just working through challenges like that and, and understanding each, each other's um, uh, perspectives uh, realizing we were, were all aligned and, and that's all that's that's what mattered at the end of the day and then you know she ultimately went to be a cfo um somewhere else oh terrific so we have a question from brett who has a background similar to your early career head of fpna at 100 person company but not a cpa no big four experience what advice would you have for someone like brett who wants to become a cfo how how, how can they get from where they are now to where you are um so generally, um, whether you're, you're specifically in a role or not, um, try to get breath, uh, working, understanding, you know, the accounting uh, function, the closed process, obviously the cruel, you know, if you're FPNA, you understand, you know, the cruel process and, and how things come together. Um, and then, you know, touch on other areas. You know, I, I mentioned, I mentioned that experience in AT you know, which when I first got the assignment, I was like, whoa, what, you know, what is this? But um, I think it was very foundational in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so just trying to get exposed to, to, to certain areas, I think will help. And I think more, more generally, 
um, if you're if you're in the SPNA role, you have that opportunity because it's the one area that touches um, many facets of the company, and it, it's also an area that you have a generally an opportunity to business partner. Um, and I think so much of the role of getting a CFO role, um, you know, if if whether it's internally at your company or externally at another company, it comes from references. It comes from people you work with. It comes from people and your ability to um, to have impact for them um, under under the, the the umbrella of the super system too, and optimizing the whole equation. And and people see that in in roles of CFO of of helping me and also helping the company. That's what a CEO wants. And so uh, you have the ability to prove that out um, in the role, but but try to touch on many areas as possible um, to get to get different breadth you know, elements of the breadth of, of the role. Uh, Steve, we have a question from Ryan who met his wife at Santa Clara, go Broncos, this is a comment. And he, he asks about the turning point for you when you got your first CFO role at Ask Jeeves, someone it sounded like on the board could have promoted the controller, but decided to promote you. Did you ever talk to that person and find out what it was that they saw in you that, that made them tap you as opposed to the other person? Um, no, I never, I never explicitly had that conversation. Um, the, you know, I think, I think the reality of what was happening was I was deep in, um, the cycles of, uh, actively trying to deal with a number of the challenges of the company, working through various constituents and within the company. And, um, so, uh, Skip Battle, who was on the board, um, he was tapped to be CEO to come in and help. And I think what happened was um, he, both himself and, and, and talking to other folks in the company, uh, there, were, there were many people that were like recommending me and I didn't even know it. And so I think he walked into a situation where he was like, okay, um, this is what we need. Uh, this, this, this type of um, uh, kind of person approach at this moment in time and it was less so on, um, you know, this person versus that person. Um, that sounds like a very important lesson learned. It sounds like your the nature of your job required collaboration with other executives. Yeah. And since you were helping to solve problems and they saw you adding value, when the time came and the CEO asked around and said, who do you recommend? You had people recommending you. It's a sort of yeah. a natural evolution. So the relationships with your peers or even other other senior people on the team, other CXOs, sounds like we're pretty critical. Yeah, and I, you know, one thing on my career, I don't necessarily recommend this from thinking about your career, and it may be based on my background. Um, you know, I I have never been one to like set these goals for myself personally. You know, I never even thought about being a CFO. I, I I'm not the type of person that says you know in three years I'm going to do this and then two years I'm going to do that. Um, and I think that's good to do. So I'm not saying don't do it. For me personally, it's been much more of a pull model than a push model. And um, I've been in different areas. And I think early in my career, I was just this eager, you know, person and willing to do anything and learn and, and try to help out. And I kept getting pulled in things. And even that role of the CFO, that happened. You know, every, every experience I've had has been someone saying, oh, let's, you do this. 
as opposed to me saying, I want that. And um, I think there's good and bad to that. I think uh, the good is it's kind of the ecosystem. What I talked about is having impact and doing good work um, and uh, helping people have impact in their areas um, is, is a catalyst to, to whether you have the goals or not. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, that's, that's how my career path has been much more pulled and pushed for me. Yeah, the, the inverse of that is from the CFO's point of view, when I've had people on my team and I have a new problem, I look around and say, who do I want to help solve this problem? I say, well, who's already solving problems? Who's already reaching out, volunteering for things and doing a great job? And so when you kept on as, a, as an individual performer, you continued to take on these challenges. It meant that the people who were going to assign the next project would naturally look to you as opposed to someone who maybe had a, a narrower job or wasn't volunteering as much or wasn't maybe performing as well. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to think about it from the, just put yourself in the point of view of the, the, the boss, the senior people who are, who are going to make the next assignment. Uh, when you, when now that you've been a CFO for a long time, when you think about the people on your team and you think about some people who got stuck in, a, in, in their career, either in a dead end job or they're, they're talented, but somehow not living up to their potential. Have you had that experience and have you been able to help people get unstuck and how, what have you done to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think we all, we've all probably, and anybody has a, a certain tenure have, have dealt with, you know, just what I talked about before the scaling aspect and, um, it's usually that I, I haven't, I don't think I've really had a, I've had one hire in my history where it was a bad culture values fit. Um, and that's probably the only one I would look back on. I think everybody else, it's been like the right people, but the times change or the challenges change and they're not able to completely grow. And you, you either invest and help grow. And I've had many instances of that. Um, uh, or you make a change and you help them on their, you still help them on their path, whether it's internal or external. And so, um, you know, we've had that. I've, I've had many examples of people in my org that, that did get stuck, but then ended up being really successful. Um, and, uh, and so I don't know if it's anything, I'm trying to like think of specifics uh, with done. I think it's just happened so many times where sometimes it, it's just a, a short-term challenge um, and, and they, they kind of broaden their perspective or they take another lens on something or they learn a new, a new aspect of, of a skill needed. Um, but I'm very, you know, I'm extremely proud of, the, you know, anybody's success is tied to the teams, right? And so, you know, I look back at the folks at LinkedIn, you know, the, the highest quality people I can imagine um, that are still there and, and ones that have gone on like several CFOs um, CAOs of huge mega cap companies and uh, presidents of, of large companies. And it's, uh, you know, from, from the teams that I've had. And then people I see internally being so successful, uh, like James and my other direct reports. So I, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just trying to navigate at times through challenges. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, you know, for a CFO role, for people aspiring to be CFO, Sometimes you get every skill you can, um, but if you don't get the one where the peers are advocates for you, that's that's probably the biggest hurdle in a lot of cases. Um, uh, you know, based you know, it showed in kind of the, the, the my career time where we've had a few where 
very, very strong people, but it wasn't like the right person that was getting pulled from the GM or operating person that wanted to have them as their partner. Um, and then yet they, you know, they do very well. So it's just sometimes fit more than anything. Well, that's, important, that's an important point about peer relationships. You've you mentioned that often you would help people grow in their roles. Uh, can you tell a story about someone where you helped them grow in their role and what, you, what did you do? What did they do? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, not on specifics. I think generally, um, you know, some of the challenges I would say are um, that I've had that are more difficult or are on, the, on the, the, the topic we just talked about where someone's very good, they're very talented and they're just not clicking uh, with the CEO or you know the head of product or whoever um, on the E-team uh, has a certain view on them. And, and those are the ones that are harder to change um, over time, it just takes more time. And uh, you know, sometimes you're successful, sometimes not. But we've had instances where, where we've had where we've had people that were put into this category for some reason that they're not um, uh, impactful or, or you know, to a complete 180 where they're like a, a key business partner. And I think the the only way to do that is to address it um, kind of early and head on so it doesn't fester. Um, and and it is a challenge because once someone gets in a box it's, it mentally gets momentum, right? So, so it's really just self-recognition. Uh, maybe they don't recognize there, there are these problems and, and yeah. you point it out and then they say, okay, well now, now we've named the problem. Let's yeah. figure out what to do about it. And it's not, it's not always one way. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's both sides and, um, and that's the challenge. And I think, I think one of the things, uh, that everybody needs to be more of, um, is adaptable. And, you know, I think uh, on the finance side, you know, one of the advantages or um, I think strong assets to have is the ability to, to kind of change and mold uh, and, um, and, and kind of coaching someone to do that effectively, not lose your position necessarily, uh, listen and understand, and, you know, not, not just cave in or anything like that, but to understand the person's objectives, goals, and their style. Um, to try to complement as much as possible. Uh, and that's something that I think is just critical for anybody uh, aspiring a role where you're, you know, the finance role is one where you're, you're kind of a person that says no, and you have to um, in many cases, and you say yes in other cases, but it's how you do it. Um, and, uh, you know, to be effective, if you need to get someone to a no, um, you want you want them to have buy-in and how they got there and agree um, or yes and I think that that skill set um, on the coaching side is one of the sometimes the ch most challenging because you get very very smart people and they they learn a way of doing something and then they they just can't adapt to someone's a completely different style of person um, and it's just it's a skill set I think that is important. Um, and it may be even more important than the IQ side. I don't know at the end of the day, because effectiveness is what matters. So, so what I'm hearing is if you classify these challenges in two buckets, one is interpersonal uh, relationships and the other is technical ability, meaning as an accountant or as an analyst, what I, it sounds like the issues that you've seen in your organization have been more on the interpersonal side than on the technical side. Is that accurate? 
Um, it's both. I would say I would say often it's more challenging on on the latter, just because uh, you know we hire very good people. I mean, on the technical side, uh, very strong. We have very strong training. Um, we don't, in many cases, have the the person who just doesn't have the inherent capability to either do the job or learn the job very quickly. Um, it's always it, it's been the the other that's been, I think, more of a hangup for a lot of people. And again, I think it's one of the things that is more of a soft um, accelerator to the CFO position. It's that ability to be recognized as someone who is working with people but yet still has the integrity and principles to, to kind of look out for the super system of the company. Um, you, you, don't want, you, you want to be able to do both at the same time simultaneously and have people understand that that's what you're doing. Um, so you have the credibility. Yeah, you've talked about how important it is to say no in a productive way. Uh, very interesting question Manisha asks, could you tell us a story about a time you had to say no to the CEO or disagreed with the CEO and how did you do that? It's always a challenge for a CFO. Oh yeah, um, there's been. I mean, obviously, many times. I'm trying to think if there's any big, like, huge. Um, I had one. This uh, this was one that was more um, concerning for me, which wasn't really the CEO, it was the board, um, and um, it was in 2009. You know, we were coming off the financial crisis and all of a sudden we got a lot of pressure to go public from two members of the board. Um, and it was extreme pressure on me and I, because I didn't feel like the company was ready. Um, and we weren't, we didn't have, I mean, our business was growing nicely, but we, our business lines weren't in any way sustainable. Um, our engagement was not where we needed to be on the site. Our, our infrastructure, our site would be, need to be throttled. We didn't even have like backup redundancy, uh, but most importantly, the business the business wasn't at the stage, but there was all this argument for we got to beat Facebook out, got to be the first social, and I pushed back and I thought I was going to get fired at the time because at the time, um, I was the only one pushing back, and then the CEO backed me, um, and that helped, and uh, then we put together a playbook on on what we needed to. You know, achieve across multiple dimensions to get there, and we executed against that, and it worked out really well. But um, that was a very stressful moment for me because I think there was, there was, um, is this there was like I think some of the board that was like, okay, is this guy, does he want to go? Like, is he, you know, does he have what it takes to take it, or is he, you know, he's just putting up these hurdles? Um, so that was one that is really I recall very vividly because of the stakes of it. Well, what a courageous thing to do in, in some ways. How, what was the delay? How, how when did you actually go public relative? So we went record? about a year and a half after. A year, so you, you delayed it for a year and a half. That's a yeah. long time. Yeah, we put together a, a roadmap. It was basically that long because we, the business needed to get to certain uh, growth projectiles, certain defensibility around each element, you know, moat around each line of business that we had. And uh, the engagement side, the infrastructure side on, on kind of the, the technology um, we had we had to recode our technology to scale the site. And that wasn't quick, um, and so there were a lot of there were a lot of challenges. And if we would have went, you know, we would have had a bumpy road. Yeah. Um, you know, it just would have been a lot bumpier than it was. 
Yeah, well, we're, we're wrapping up. And to conclude, I have two questions. One, it has to do with advice. Uh, if you think back on your career, what advice did someone give you that was very helpful that you would like to now pass on to our audience today? Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's, it's the one I, I, I mentioned around, um, well, I, I would say that I'm trying to think if there's anything different that, you know, the, the team element that I talked about, um, think about the scaling of, of, of the and how you work with the people around you that so was building relationships with your peers in yeah. addition to your subordinates and your boss yeah and, and everybody i mean you know i think everybody i think this idea of the growth mindset um because i think sometimes uh, there's this linear thinking on growth around this is where i'm headed and there's many paths and there's different experiences and there's also different um, relationships, you know, I, I, I learned probably more from the people who reported to me than anybody else. Um, and so I think it's just having that mindset, um, uh, you know, as you think about paths, uh, to, to a CFO role. So that I, I would say that that's probably, um, the advice, um, I would that's, give. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I know a friend of mine just put up uh, on a white, a yellow sticky note, the word relationships on his mirror so that every morning he'd look at it to remind himself you know, he's a pretty analytical person. He has to focus on relationships. Yeah. So last question, if you were going to write a book, uh, a CFO playbook, what's one thing that a CFO or a finance person can do tomorrow morning to help their companies or themselves in their careers? You know, I've um, what I've learned this is really simple, um, but I've used it both implicitly and then more explicitly in different stages. Um, I kind of coined this phrase internally here around intelligent growth through focus and scale. And I think um, when you think about whether it's personal or, or, or the company, um, and you go through different cycles, uh, you know, fundamentally first think about intelligent growth. Are you, are you growing um, in, in the right sustainable way, whether personally or your company uh, in terms of, you know, I've had many instances where, you know, you have, you're, you're trying to maintain growth and all these ideas come up and you're looking at them all. And some of them are like, okay, well, this is like a one-time thing. And then we got to comp against it and got to hire a bunch of people. It's not really sustainable. And we have all these other priorities that there's opportunity cost, And so really, really set the mindset around kind of intelligent growth, because that's going to lead to a lot of um, just kind of compounding uh, a capability if you get that right. And then the way you do it is through focus, obviously, uh, a CFO um, is, is, as I mentioned earlier, in tough times, sometimes it's easier to focus than in good times. When you have a bunch of positive NPD projects and everybody's throwing out these ideas in all these big markets, um, it's trying to do fewer things better and get them right. Um, and then the scale side, uh, you know, leverage has kind of gotten a bad connotation in a lot of ways. But when you think about uh, the ability to compound um, and you get that 
that cycle going of intelligent growth. You're focusing more and more on the right things and the leverage and scales working. And so I've always tried to frame, um, you know, as a CFO is how do you, how do you put the lens on the company that you invest in the system areas that allow you to do things very effectively and efficiently you're focused on the things that have the, the, the biggest long-term impact and, and you're driving this intelligent growth that's going to have more margins and more reinvestment over time that that mindset more than anything is um and being able to cascade that is uh, is it's not a playbook but it's like it's something that you can play over and over in terms of your, your mindset and approach in a company. Well, Steve, what a great way to end. Intelligent growth, focus, and scale. Great advice for all of us. Uh, Laura, back to you for any concluding remarks. And Steve, thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you, Steve. That was uh, really enlightening and great. Thanks for spending the time. Um, yeah, so just uh, hope to see everyone at a future webinar. Have a great uh, morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you're based. And uh, Perfect. Thanks, Happy everyone. holidays, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff.